John chapter 14, verses 25 through 27. John 14, 25 through 27. The simple title of the message is Great News. Great News. The text reads this way. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance, and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. In a time of turmoil and uncertainty for these disciples, and for us today, I suppose, but their situation more severe at this time, Jesus promises peace. You realize the next morning he's arrested, he's going to be slaughtered, nailed to a tree. Thorns are going to be shoved on his head, and they're going to spit in his face. They're going to run in fear because they're afraid they're about to die. And at that moment, Jesus grants them peace. Positional peace, yes. What is positional peace? That I have peace with God, who I am in Christ. And then when I die, I shall go to heaven. Positional peace. We'll see it later in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by His grace, we have peace. So it's a possession, a a, a position that we have with him that when I stand before God, I'm not going to be thrown into hell. Okay, positional peace. But it's also experiential peace. It's that peace that is given to us that sees us through the midst of the storm. He's talking about that experiential peace as well. And these guys are going to experience that after the resurrection, when the Holy Spirit comes and teaches them all of these things. And a student of the Apostle John, year 70 A.D. to around 155, had this type of experiential peace. His name was Polycarp, Polycarp of Smyrna. He was an elderly man in his 80s. He sat at a table eating dinner. Polycarp knew his life was in danger. A group of Christians had just been executed in the arena on account of their faith. But Polycarp refused to leave Rome. The Romans were executing any self-proclaimed Christians, and pagans were betraying those that they knew to be Christians. After the recent executions, the crowd in the arena had chanted, for Polycarp's death. A renowned follower of Christ, and he was the bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp had become a Christian under the tutelage of John the Apostle. Recently, the Roman proconsul had been looking for him for days. After arresting and torturing one of Polycarp's servants, they finally learned where he was staying. The soldiers are rushing into the house, and Polycarp doesn't move. He calmly states, God's will be done. Well, Polycarp asks that food be brought for the soldiers. This is Christianity. Come to arrest him. Well, let's get you some food. 
And he requested, could I just have one hour to pray before you take me? Amazed by Polycarp's fearlessness, especially for a man of his age, the hardened Roman soldiers granted his request. Polycarp prayed for two hours for all the Christians that he knew, for the universal church, and for the soldiers who were there to arrest him. As Polycarp entered the stadium, several Christians present, uh, present, present heard a voice from heaven say, quote, Be strong, Polycarp, and act like a man. Because of his age, the Roman proconsul gave Polycarp a final chance to live. He just had to swear by Caesar and say, take away the atheist. At that time, Christians were called atheists for refusing to worship the Greek and Roman gods. Polycarp looked at the roaring crowds. He took his hand and made motion in reference to all the crowds. And he said, take away the atheist. The proconsul continued, swear and I will let you go. Reproach Christ. Polycarp turned to the proconsul and boldly declared, quote, Eighty-six years I have served him. He has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul urged him again, Swear by the fortune of Caesar. But Polycarp replied, you got to love it, quote, Since you vainly think that I will swear by the fortune of Caesar, as you say, and pretend not to know who I am, listen carefully. I am a Christian. He had experiential peace. Right at the point of execution, very clear and very calm, I am a Christian. Now to our text in John 14, so we look at this text this morning in verse 25. I'll talk to you a moment again, it's been throughout this passage in these last weeks, but it is here before us again, the message about the paraclete. Paraclete is the Greek word, it gets translated as helper, as counselor, as comforter, and here in our text, at least in the ESV, it gets translated in verse 26 as helper. So paraclete, and we look beginning at verse 25. And I want you to see, first off, this whole message is for your profit and for your help. It should be encouraging. If it's not, I don't know how you could be encouraged. But look at the tenderness of Christ. Here's his disciples. He's going to be executed tomorrow. He knows what's going to go through their mind, what's going to go through their hearts, what they're going to experience. He knows all of that. And so with a tender, compassionate shepherd's voice, he, he says, these things... I've spoken to you. I've taken time out of my day. I'm investing to you these words. I I want you to hear me. I've I've got something that you're desperately going to need in the days to come. Now, Jesus makes this phrase several times in these closing moments. I say these things to you. I say these things to you. Let us listen to them once again where we can hear Jesus' tenderness. And they, I put them in, in, in order, at least in the text. In John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you. And 
I want your joy. I want it to be full. That's what he says to them. And then in John 16, 1, I have said all these things to you. Why? I want to keep you from falling away. I want you to have joy to the full, and I don't want you to fall away. I love you. I really love you, and I don't want harm to come to you. And then you look in John 16, 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. That's fine. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. Post-resurrection, they're going to get it. Just hang on. I'll make it really clear. Just hang in there. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, that you would possess it today and for all time. This is the tenderness of our Lord, and we see it here in verse 25 of our text. I've spoken these things to you while I'm still with you. I'm not going to leave you orphaned. Remember last week? You're not an orphan. I have this great gift. I'm going to petition my Father And he's going to send to you personally the third person of the Godhead. And he's going to dwell in you and he's going to help you. I'm telling you this now while I'm present with you. Because when I'm gone, you're going to have all of these thoughts. But it's going to come back. And it's going to make sense. And you're going to put it all together. And then you're just going to give your life for me. What a tender, uh, compassionate pastor he is to them. Now, I've heard all kind of goofy scenarios, and I'm not going to trace those down because I don't have the time for it, and I don't want to bore you with the details, but how to get the Holy Spirit to come? How do you get the Holy Spirit in your service? How do you get the Holy Spirit in your individual life? How do you have the Holy Spirit on Monday? And all these scenarios, and we even have songs, until the Spirit comes, newsflash, He's here. He's, He's omnipresent in the whole universe. I'm not worried about getting him to come because I'm like in Psalm 139 trying to figure out where I would go. He's not. He says, if I go to heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. I mean, wherever I go, you're there. So, So here we have the Spirit. So let's take biblical exposition of how we get the Spirit of God to come. Here it is, in order. The Holy Spirit comes in five ways in our passages here. John 14, 16. He is given... By the Father at the Son's request. That's number one. Somebody needs to let that guy in. I do this every week. I don't know. It's, it's Kevin. I don't know what he's doing out there. It, the, the Spirit of God is given by request from Jesus. How are we going to get the Spirit to come? I know how. Jesus petitioned the Father for him to come. That's how he's going to come. Number two. John 14, 26, he is sent by the Father in Christ's name. That's how he's sent. He's sent as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ to be your helper. That's what he does. Number three, John 15, 26a, he is sent by Christ from the Father. The Father and the Son are in unity in the sending of Christ. They're still trying to get in. I don't, I'm, just, I'm sorry. It's messing me up. Number four, he proceeds, just as John 15, 26, 
He proceeds or goes out from the Father. And then the fifth way, John 16, 7. It says specifically in that verse, He is sent by Christ. Did y'all miss all of that in that little bit of the altercation? Look, the Father and the Son are in agreement with the sending of the Spirit, and they send Him in the name of the Son in order that He can take up residence in you personally and be your helper to comfort you and guide you with peace through the midst of a storm. How in the world do you write, it is well with my soul over the spot where your family died? How do you write like that? Because the Spirit of God dwelt in him and enabled him to say, I have peace even though my family has drowned to death. How do you say that? How do you say before your executioner who's going to execute you if you're a Christian, how do you say, I am a Christian? You say that because the Spirit of God enables you to have that type of peace, to be calm in that situation, and to be able to live through the midst of the storm. By the way, in case someone misses a word, the Holy Spirit is not a substitute for Jesus. It's not a substitute. Jesus is a substitute for us on Calvary, but the Holy Spirit is not a substitute for Jesus, no more than Jesus is a substitute for the Father. The Son of God is an emissary. He's a delegate sent out to represent the Father. The Holy Spirit is an emissary sent out to represent the Father and the Son. He's not a substitute. He's an emissary to make Christ known. Now, what does the Holy Spirit do in this text? Now, there's a lot of other things, but in our text, what does the Holy Spirit do? You see this in verse 26. The helper, the counselor, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. This is what he does. He will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all. What are the all things? What are the all? They are the things that Jesus has said. This is a very crucial point if you care anything about theology and charismatics and people taking things out of context. The Spirit of God is going to take everything that Jesus said, and He is going to make it clear to these disciples that they understand it and will risk their lives for it. Uh, This is my news-breaking statement. The Spirit does not even give new revelation to the apostles. The, The Spirit doesn't give new revelation. He grants understanding to what Jesus has said. We live in a culture that hears words from Jesus and we have seances and some kind of yoga party to get in touch with some kind of feeling and get some kind of words from some type of book and we meditated and wrote it down because some woman told us to and so this is what God said. The Holy Spirit does not give new revelation apart from what Christ has said. Not even to the apostles. Everything you read for the rest of the Bible is in agreement with what Jesus taught. The Spirit's responsibility is just to open their understanding to the depth of what Jesus has said. 
And here we are in the same plane. I'm not studying every week to find something new. I'm not trying to get a new book. I'm I'm studying this book to understand what he wrote. And the Spirit gives me help to understand the truth of the Scripture. You've said it. I've said it. Man, I read my Bible every year, and I find something new. I find something new. No, you found something old that you weren't aware of. And it was brought to light, and you rejoiced in it. It's a living word, and the Spirit keeps it alive in us. John tells us this type of thought in a few other passages. You'll remember early on in John chapter 2, we had the water to the wine and all of that, and then we had to destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. You remember that. And he says this statement in that passage. When therefore Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture. You connect that, right? Jesus said Scripture. They're synonyms. Jesus said it, and then they believed, they remembered and believed it. That's what John said was going to happen. How is it that they didn't understand it in John 2, but they understand it at the beginning of Acts? How? The Holy Spirit, indwelling within them, opened their eyes to see. Then in John 12, 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered What caused them to remember? The Holy Spirit brought their memory back to these things that had been written about him and what had been done to him. And even at the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20 and verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must suffer and die and rise from the dead. But oh, bless God, they get it. And as the Holy Spirit made that true to them, he convinces us of the truths that Jesus Christ has taught. The disciples remembered because they were taught by the Spirit. This is, I mean, there is no other explanation for these guys. There's no other explanation for how they lived out their life and preached and were martyred than this simple truth. The Spirit of God made the things Jesus taught come to understanding and reality to them. They saw it so plainly, they didn't count their lives as worth anything. Paul considered it all dung. It's all worthless. That it may appertain Christ. The Spirit did that in them. So I would say to you this morning, the Holy Spirit teaches us the truth about what Jesus taught. You say, okay, what am I supposed to do with that? I don't know. When you read your Bible this week, you could try something like this. Holy Spirit, will you help me to understand the written Word of God? That's, I heard from my pastor and from the text, that's what you do. Help me to understand the Scriptures. You can pray and ask for that. The Spirit causes truth to be remembered. You get in a situation at work or you get in a, a situation in your family. Holy Spirit, help me to remember a text that would help me. I've read the Bible. I need help right now. And he would lead you to a text. It was in Sunday school this morning. And Charles said, I memorized a verse a long time ago. And he sat there and thought for just a minute. And she's like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. And then boom, he quotes it word for word. He learned it a long time ago. What happened? In that room back there, the Spirit of God brought it up out of his heart and spoke it out of his mouth and caused him to remember it because he memorized it all that time ago. This is what the Spirit of God does. Take advantage of that. 
We should ask the Holy Spirit to teach us truth and to remind us of truth. Now, verse 27, you see it there in your text, uh, just the first part of this verse. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. So you got peace in here twice. Now, the word for peace is the Hebrew word for shalom. Shalom or peace is the Greek word. It's the Jewish word for greeting, and it's the Jewish word for farewell. So you could say peace when you greet someone, and you could also say peace when you're leaving out of the room to go somewhere else. It's the same word, or the Jewish would say shalom. This is the same word. And here, we get it used both ways. We get it used of him leaving, and we'll get it used of him giving them a greeting. And so we'll do both of those. Just give us a second to get there. So Jesus leaves them peace. This is the farewell context in verse 27. I leave you. Peace I leave with you. Now, <coughs> this word for leave is uh, it's kind of the idea, I don't know a better word, bequeath. Maybe a word, uh, leaving something with someone. Let me give you a Bible, two Bible verses that will make it make sense. I can't think of a better word than bequeath. So Psalm 17, 14 says it this way. From men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. Now listen. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they bequeath. They leave their abundance to their infants. Okay, if you don't get that one, try Ecclesiastes 2.18. Solomon says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must bequeath it or leave it to the man who will come after me. So that's the idea of this word. Jesus is saying, I'm going to bequeath to you my peace. <laughs> Do you get this? Think about Christ. Think about from his birth till the time he's nailed on that tree. Look at all of his life and tell me when he was anxious. Tell me when he got flustered in the flesh and railed off and yelled at somebody and cut them off in traffic. Tell me when he lost it and just started yelling at everybody and cussed them out. There's nothing. He is always in absolute peace, even when they're nailing him to a tree. And he says, this peace that I possess, I bequeath it to you. Do, do you believe that? Why am I living in a world of anxiety and worry and confusion and discombobulation? Why does the church look much like the world with all these things going on? When Jesus said, I'm giving this type of peace, my peace, I'm giving it to you. Somebody hadn't received I also tell you this, you may not catch this readily, but it is here. There's three personal possessions that Jesus advertises about himself. Three things he says, my, my, and my. This is one, my peace. Another one is my love. And another one is my joy. Three of them. Think about it. John 14, 27, where we are, that's my peace. John 15, 9, and 10. You just turn the page, 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. 
just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then you go down to verse 11, uh, 15, 11. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. My peace, my love, and my joy. I wonder if that triad of things is ever mentioned in that order again in all of the New Testament. And I look in my Bible to Galatians, and I get to chapter 5 in the context of the Holy Spirit. And it says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Jesus says he's going to leave these three in the context of the Spirit dwelling in you. Paul picks up on that and says, here's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace. That ought to be the reality of the Christian. It ought to be the reality of by the word Baptist church. We ought to be the calmest people on the face of the earth because we have peace. How can you be at peace in the midst of this hurricane? Well, Jesus gave it to me. How how can you have love in a world that acts like it acts? Oh, well, Jesus gave it to me. Well, how can you have this type of joy? When, I mean, look at the inflation. Look at all the COVID. Look at the president. Look at, look at, look at all this stuff. How can you possibly have joy? Oh, Jesus gave it to me. Do, I mean, do we believe this stuff? Do we believe the Bible? He's saying that he has granted this. Jesus gives this to you. This peace I leave with you, I mentioned it in the introduction very briefly, is positional peace here. It's the type of peace that results from a definite atonement. This peace is applied to the conscience. Come hell or high water, I'm not afraid of judgment day. I've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and I'll stand before God ready to enter into the, the, the entries into glory, Right? It's, a, it's that conscience, I know, because he's given me this. It's as I said earlier in the sermon, Romans 5.1, since we've been justified by faith, it doesn't say we might have peace or we get some peace or we have a little bit of peace. He says you possess it. We have peace with God right now. It, it, that's, the, that's the testimony of the Christian. If today I have quadruple bypass and I don't make it, and right before I go in they say you only have a 2% chance of making it, I want to open my eyes and say I have a 100% chance of making it. Well, you could die, but I shall live. You're not, why don't Christians speak this way? Well, this could happen and you could die. This could happen and you could fall. No, 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 no. I'm going to make it. Don't, go back to Daniel. Can you go back to Daniel for a minute? We ain't going to bow down. Well, this is what's going to happen to you. <laughs> you know this, O king. Whether you do this or whether you do that, I know my God will deliver me. Amen. That's what's going to happen. Whether he delivers me here in this world or delivers me in the world to come, I will be delivered. They had peace. Oh, there's the fire. Let me in first. Oh, you want me to get in that den with lion? Okay. Well, that lion's not going to touch me unless my God tells him to bite me. Where are people like this? And he says, the greeting. So that's the farewell. Very briefly, the greeting. I said peace was a farewell and it was a greeting. And so now, here's the greeting. So all of that happens. goes to the crucifixion, then you have the resurrection, right? So now after the resurrection, 
John 20, verse 19. Remember the evening of, the, of that day, the first day of the week. The doors were locked. The disciples were, were for fear, fear of the Jews. See, it hadn't all clicked yet. Still living in fear. Jesus came and he stood amongst them and he said to them, Peace be with you. This is the greeting of peace. John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. John 20, 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. You see this inclusio, these bookends, before the crucifixion and after the crucifixion, I leave with you peace, peace be with you. This is the gift, the great news of Christ to his children. I give you peace. You understand people are spending so much money, I can't even calculate it, to try to get some type of uh, counseling of how to make sense out of life, how to have meaning out of life, how to have purpose in life. You know they go to counselors and pay $100 an hour to get some type of counsel to get their life in order? Look, come to my office. It's free. I won't charge you a penny. It won't cost you nothing. You You say, man, my life's a mess. Oh, good. I know one who can give you peace. He's been promised in the Word of God. What what do I have to do? Believe. Believe. Believe that this book is true. Believe that what Jesus said is true. And all of a sudden, perfect love will just drive fear out of you. You don't get that from Dr. Phil. My peace I give to you is the type of peace that is enjoyed through the indwelling Holy Spirit. He greets them with this peace, and this is going to be that experiential peace that is going to guide them through the rest of their lives. What a great promise. Think about it in a couple of contexts. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. You're going to get the peace of God and the peace of Christ. They're synonyms. So in Philippians 4, 7, experiential peace should be experienced by all Christians. Then you get Colossians 3.15. This one's really good. Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule, reign. Let the peace of Christ govern your life. It's really a command. It comes out in English, let. You must have the peace of Christ rule your life. To rule in your hearts. Because indeed, that's to what you were called And you should be thankful because the peace of Christ is ruling and governing my life. I'm pretty stinking thankful because if he wasn't, man, my life would be a shipwreck. I must comment on the word rule, peace of Christ rule, because it's an interesting Greek word. And it's, this word means, this Greek word for rule means be in control of someone's activity by making a decision. The peace of Christ controls my life and makes decisions for me. He's to be the judge, the decider, the controller. The peace of Christ is supposed to be doing that in your everyday decisions. Your everyday life, whatever comes through your world, the Holy Spirit, the peace of Christ that he has given you should be governing you how to respond. So what do you say about the guy who goes off the handle? 
The guy that loses his cool. The guy that acts like a jerk and yells and treats his wife like a stepdog. What do you what do? You do? What, what, is, what is going on there? I don't know all what's going on there, but I can tell you this. <laughs> the Spirit of God's not ruling. Now you can trace that out however far you want if that's you. But if the peace of Christ is ruling in you, you're not going to live that way. But why? Because the Spirit of God will not let you. He said, not let me. Yeah, he's in charge. He's sovereign. And so you may have bursts or spits of things that happen here and there, but you can't live that way as Christian because the Spirit of God will not allow it. I grew up most of my life in a bitter Southern Baptist church. I, I love the church. I'm not saying nothing about the church. I just know that in human experience as a kid growing up in the Southern Baptist church, I've seen enough church fights in my life to last me the rest of my life. And I've seen people act the most ungodly ways I've ever seen in my life in the church. And through all of that, I'm saying, I know something that's missing. It's this. The Spirit of God wasn't ruling because when He's ruling, there will be peace in the midst of the congregation and individually. Now, that's in a generic, kind of a large portion, but individually, let's put it this way. I'm going to quote D.A. Carson one time, and it says it this way about on an individual level. <clears throat> so let me say it slowly. The peace secures composure in the midst of trouble. It dissolves fear as the final injunction of this verse demonstrates. What does the last junction of this verse indicate? The very last verse, the last line says that they're not to be afraid. Okay? This is the peace which garrisons our hearts, protects. It's like a, a, a bulwark never failing around the hearts. It's the, it's the peace which garrisons our hearts and our minds against what? This peace garrisons my heart and my mind against what? Anxiety. Does anybody in this room believe that? Most of us spend our time in anxiety and worry about finances and jobs and kids and situations and things. And here I am preaching a Bible that says that he garrisons our hearts and our minds against anxiety. That when everything else is falling apart, Polycarp is going, I am a Christian. It's evidence of the Spirit of God. It rules and arbitrates the heart of God's people to maintain harmony. What a great blessing Christ has given us in the Spirit of God. And I know I've sent this out to many of you over the course of 20 years, going to the hospital for surgery, having a difficult situation. I quickly turn to this verse so many times and send it out on a text message or something when somebody's in need. But why? Because I believe it. And and whether I believe it or not doesn't matter because it's true whether I believe it or not. Isaiah 26 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Why? Why does he do that? Because he trusts you. You remember John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me. Here in Isaiah, it's the same thought. His mind is stayed on you. He trusts, he believes in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. The great God. 
You people are going to make me go off and preach here in a minute. Look, look, I mean, you watch these stupid football games and people scream for 50 hours, screaming their head off about some ball filled with air. And I'm telling you that God has come down in personification and form and dwelt among you to give you peace that the world can't shake. That's reality. Football is stupid. You can't go to church. Not get sick, but I sure as heck go to the football game. It's crying shame. The church is treated that way. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let me say these things this morning. Man, what's the world? What, what, what can the world give you? The world gives from hatred, selfishness, bitterness, malice, anxiety, and fear. Thus, any attempt at peace by the world is in, it's quickly annihilated by instability. The world can't produce any kind of peace. No matter what methods the world may employ to produce peace, without dealing effectively with the human heart, there is no peace. What does the world offer? You know what it is. The world, what is it? they offer vices. I'm sitting at shortstop this week. I think it's the drug capital of the world now. But I'm sitting there. and look, You know how much a, a package of cigarettes is nowadays? I had no clue. I looked up. They're $9 a box. I'm sitting in a store with everybody who's poor. You smoke one pack a day, seven days a week. I see, seven times nine. Last time I was in school, $63 a week. Man, that's like $126 every two weeks. Man, that's like $250, $60 in a month. You know what? You can have a car. But they're trying to get peace. Smoke a cigarette and I'll feel better. You smoke a cigarette and you smell like smoke. Unbelievable. Drugs, alcohol, sexual sins, money, entertainment, hobbies, politics. It's like the politics are going to give us peace. Does anybody in the room believe that? World peace. World peace. Stimulus money, that'll do it. Bailouts, empty promises, false hopes, humanism. Reject the supernatural, elevating humanity to the central concern, funding all groups. Let's just put everybody on welfare and you depend on us. That'll work. Then we'll all be in one happy place. Have you been to Mexico lately? Whatever attempts are made by the world to give peace are in reality nothing more than empty promises and delusional dreams. I can't escape the fact of Jeremiah. Anybody in here that knows Jeremiah knows what this is going to say. From the least of them to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from the prophet to the priest, we could add to the politician and to everybody else out there, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Now, I don't use the today's English version very often, but it's good right here in this one spot, just this one spot. They have healed the wound of my people lightly. Here's the TV. They act as if my people's wounds were only scratches. Look, our problem's a lot deeper than a scratch. There is no peace unless the heart is dealt with. Okay, let me break it down to a level we can all understand. The world trying to provide peace is like an ice cream truck in July coming down the road, and you run up to the window, and the freezer's empty. Are you with me? Oh, I hear the music. Oh, I see the truck. Oh, get the money. And you run out there and it's like, oh, dude, I'm out. They're going to slap you. What's wrong with you? Come in my neighborhood with an ice cream truck and you got nothing to deliver. What kind of world is this? It's like, it's like, here you go. Here's the lottery ticket. But it's not the winning ticket. You got my hopes up. There was nothing there. That's all the world. They have promises without product. 
You know this. And now you come to church at By the Word Baptist Church, and you look in the Bible, and you get this. Jesus says, my peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. I don't care what happens in your life. If you're like Sean on the ventilator in Oklahoma, and Leona is sitting outside that window looking in, she can make it. She can endure through that. When you lose your spouse, or you lose a kid, or you have one about to die, you can endure through that, and you don't need anything the world has. You don't need psychotropic drugs. You don't need alcohol. You don't need cigarettes. You don't need Dr. Phil. You certainly don't need Oprah, and you don't need any Democratic Party to help you because the second person of the Godhead has given you a gift. Spirit of God to give you peace. The last part of verse 27, the shortest part. Your heart must not be troubled. Inward turmoil. Your mind shouldn't be disturbed and thrown into confusion. Just like he said in John 14, 1, believe in God, believe also in me. That second part, your heart must not be fearful, cowardly, dismayed. Look at it there in your text. Let not your hearts be troubled. That last phrase Neither let them be, notice the last word, afraid. That word means cowardly or fearful. Let me give you a couple of contexts. Moses told the people that God had given him the promised land and they were to take it. Do not fear or be dismayed. Or at the end of Moses' life, he challenged Israel and Joshua. He says, do not fear, two different words, do not fear Do not be in dread of them, nor fear or nor be dismayed. Dismayed or dread. Joshua 1.9, when God commissioned Joshua, he said, Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Or in a negative context, one more, in a negative context, Isaiah in regards to the judgment that God was bringing on Babylon, he says, Therefore all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt, melt, dismay, dread. You don't have to have that. You must not have that because the Spirit of God lives in you and gives you peace, experiential peace in the midst of a storm. Believe God, believe Jesus. The previous verses told us having and keeping This is the kicker. This is the kick in the seat of the pants. Having and keeping equals loving. 1421. Loving Jesus equals keeping his word. Later, 1 John, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Perhaps the visible church, confessing Christians, are exhibiting fear, anxiety, and heart trouble because they have no pattern of delightful obedience to the clear commands of Christ. Now it gets interesting. So there's a lot of anxiety and worry in the church. Wonder if it's tied to disobedience, rebellion, and carnality. Because when I read the Bible about these apostles, and I read about Polycarp and other martyrs, I get a different picture than what I see going on in the church. Why? 
because these guys delightfully obeyed in the commands of Christ. Polycarp said, I am a Christian, and now the end of the story. The proconsul threatened, I have wild beasts, I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Polycarp replied, Call them, for we cannot repent from what is better to what is worse. But it is noble to turn from what is evil to what is righteous. Then the proconsul threatened Polycarp with fire. But he responds, quote, You threaten me with a fire that burns an hour and is soon quenched. You are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment stored up for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Do what you want. Light the fire, buddy. Then the proconsul threatened Polycarp with fire. He responded, oh, I did that. Finally, the proconsul sent a herald to the middle of the stadium to announce that Polycarp was confessing his faith as a Christian. The crowd shouted for Philip of Asiarch to send a lion against Polycarp, but he refused. Then they shouted for Polycarp to be burned. They moved him to the marketplace. They prepared the pyre. Polycarp undressed. He climbed up. When they were going to nail him, this is what he said. Leave me like this. He who gives me to endure the fire will also give me to remain on the pyre without your security from the nails. So they did not nail him, but they tied him up. Bravely, Polycarp prayed as the soldiers prepared the wood. And after he concluded praying, the Romans had threatened Polycarp with beast and with fire, but nothing would make him turn against Christ. After his prayer, the men lit the pyre. It sprang up quickly, but even the fire wouldn't touch him as it formed an arc around Polycarp's body. The Romans didn't know what to make of this, and so in the end, the Romans commanded an executioner to stab him, and they stabbed him with a spear, and the blood spilled out and put the fire out. And he died in perfect peace. And you're upset because your car wouldn't crank this morning. Staggering how far we've fallen. Where are Christians who can walk through this totally depraved, fallen world in peace? I'm with Christ. Yea, though none go with me, I still will follow. Brother Jeff, if you'll lead us in song to close us out.